The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. Welcome, everybody. You've already been welcomed here this morning, but I just want to say once again, it is a, a pleasure and an honor to get to worship Jesus Christ with you this morning. And whether you're a longtime member a uh, new time member, visitor, you are welcomed this morning in the name of Jesus. And we're glad you're here at the Springs. And I wanted to let you know, since it's November and we're creeping up to 2024, about an exciting program that we're going to get to implement here at the Springs next year. It's called Testimony HQ. It's a Lilly Endowment funded program based in the Perkins School of Theology at SMU in Dallas. But really what it's about is us as a church, all of next year, getting to think intentionally about how we do testimony at our church, thinking and intentionally implementing God's stories here at the Springs. And so we're going to have a lot more to say about that program over the next weeks and months. Uh, but the first thing you can do, just to give another QR code to you this morning, the first thing you can do is take a 10-minute survey, and that's going to help us get some really important information that will help us in the preparatory work for this program, Testimony HQ, that I'm very excited to launch with you in 2024 at the Springs. But this morning is week three in our sermon series, Blessed Are the Peacemakers. We've talked about grace and peace. We've talked about the world and peace. And this morning, we're going to focus on peace within the church. And we're going to do that primarily in the Gospel of Matthew, particularly in chapter 18, verses 15 through 22. If your brother or sister sins against you, Go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If you are listened to, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you, so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If that person refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector." Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, if my brother or sister sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much this morning for your word. We thank you for your love for us, and we thank you for the grace of Jesus Christ that greets us in this word today. God, we ask that this word would Come to us and speak afresh your truth, your gospel truth. God, please help us to implement this truth of your word in our lives, in our church, in our communities, and beyond. God, I ask you for the gift of preaching. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
Last Sunday, we focused on the church's calling to make peace in the world as a contrast society. A society of peace that can teach the world its ways of violence. And I think if Mark Twain had been with us last Sunday, he might have fired off one of his famous quips in which he said, the church is always trying to get other people to reform. It might not be a bad idea to reform itself a little by way of example. It's true. If the church is going to be taken seriously as peacemakers in the world, then we have to show the world that we can make peace in the church. Amen? The church has to learn how to be peacemakers within these walls. It's not that we expect the church to be a place without conflict. We shouldn't expect that. While we don't belong to the world, we still are in a broken, fallen, sinful world, and that includes every single one of us. The church is not a place without conflict. We don't make believe a church without conflict. We make peace in church amidst conflict. We take the conflict that is in the church. We don't make believe there isn't any, but we make peace through Jesus Christ in the church. Alfred Poirier of Peacemaker Ministries, which I know some in this room are familiar with, he tells a story about some arbitration he was doing for two Christians in conflict. One of them was the director of a worldwide Christian relief organization, and the other one was a consultant that they had hired to do some work for them. And they were in breach of contract, is what they were both attesting of each other. The director of the relief organization said, hey, he's not done the work that we contracted him to do. The consultant said, yes, I did, and you haven't paid me $25,000 like you said you would. So Alfred comes in, and he meets these guys. And right after he meets the director of the Christian Worldwide Relief Organization, that guy says, Yeah, hey, and I hope that you are going to get this done today because I've got some important ministry to do. To which Alfred thinks, well, clearly he doesn't view this as part of the ministry of reconciliation. Clearly this guy doesn't see that there's an opportunity to glorify God in this conflict. That making peace in the church is itself part of the ministry of the gospel. He says he functioned as if God were in a box, a box called ministry, cordoned off from the realities of conflict in this life. Now there are some conflicts that are so petty and ridiculous that they are absolutely a distraction from the real work of the kingdom of God. Paul says as much, right, in 2 Timothy, have nothing to do with stupid and senseless controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. But at the same time, we need to recognize with Alfred that the work of making peace in church is not something separate from the gospel. It is the work of the gospel making peace with one another, seeing that conflict is a chance to honor and glorify the God who shows us peace in Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to explore this morning in Matthew 18 primarily, but there's a lot that can be said before we get to Matthew 18. 
right? Some of you might be familiar with that old famous quote attributed to Benjamin Franklin that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. An ounce of prevention in peacemaking is worth a pound of cure to conflict. Right? There is a lot of preventative work of peace that happens long before we get to the conflict resolution of Matthew 18. Right? There is preventative work, proactive peacemaking, rather than just reacting to the conflicts. Right? This is a church that over its 70-year history has needed a lot of cure, but we've also done a lot of preventative work. And I really see, I see our elders doing that right now. A lot of the proactive, preventative work of making peace in this church. And I gotta tell you, I'm really, really grateful for that. I'm grateful because, as Peter Senge writes, the healthy society, like the healthy body, is not the one that has taken the most medicine. It is the one in which the internal health-building force is in the best shape. I'm grateful for the work of peacemaking that goes on in our leadership, that goes on in the chairs, that goes on in your homes, in your connections groups. We are doing the work of the kingdom by making peace with one another. And one of the ways we do that over and over and over again is by what Proverbs calls overlooking an offense. That's one of the ways of making peace that happens before we get to Matthew 18, right? Proverbs 19.11 says, Those with good sense are slow to anger, and it is their glory to overlook an offense. All right? Love covers a multitude of sins, and we have to let that love cover our sins constantly, don't we? We say something we shouldn't have, we do something we shouldn't have. We don't do something that we should have done. And it's a legitimate way to make peace, to overlook that offense, right? to, to move on. Proverbs says that's to your glory. That's wise, to overlook an offense. There's another way we make peace before we get to Matthew 18. And that's what I want to call this morning the offender's onus. Matthew 18 is about you confronting the person who sinned against you, but there's also the possibility that the sinner can realize, I've messed up. I need to go make peace with them. I need to go and be reconciled. Isn't that what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, not too long after he talks about peacemakers? Remember this? He says, so then, if you bring your gift to the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your gift. This is a radical reminder of just how much God values peace. Just how much God values reconciliation. Hear what Jesus is saying. It's more urgent than worship. Right? You get to the altar, and remember, Jesus his first hearers were out in Galilee. That's likely where the Sermon on the Mount was preached. So he says, you make that three-day journey to the Jerusalem temple. You get to the altar and you remember. You go make that three-day journey back. And you go and make peace. 
He's not just saying step outside the temple and make a phone call. You go make peace, and then you get back to the temple. Then you get back to the gift you're offering. So church, I want to give you that permission as well this morning. If If there's somebody you need to go make peace with, absolutely go and be reconciled. Or make that phone call. Shoot that text. This is your get out of sermon free card. But Jesus says that regardless of who's in the wrong, who's sinned against whom, something we need to keep in mind is Matthew 7, later in the sermon, where he says, Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Now you may have a legitimate claim against your brother or sister in Christ. But guess what, Jesus says, they may have a legitimate claim against you. And it's our fallen sinful tendency to overestimate the harm done to us, likely, and underestimate the harm we've done to them. So Jesus says, because of that, let's lean in the other direction. Let's just go ahead and assume that they've got the speck of sawdust and we have the two-by-four. Jesus says, take the log out of your own eye. This is preventative work of peace. And an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And overlooking an offense is a glorious, wise thing to do, but sometimes it can't be overlooked. Peter Steinke, in his book, Healthy Congregations, he draws the analogy between little cuts and deep wounds. There are cuts that wash it off, slap a Band-Aid on, you're fine. But then there are wounds that are deeper. There are wounds that can't be dealt with so hastily. And he says when a wound is prematurely closed, the edges never come together appropriately. The wound festers within even though it appears to be well. Eventually cells die from infection, lack of oxygen, poor circulation or isolation. There's widespread distortion because healing was forced or coerced, not given time to do its proper work. Sometimes overlooking an offense works. But sometimes it's going to take a conversation. Sometimes peace is going to take multiple or many conversations because sometimes the wound is deep and if you don't deal with it, it will sink into a deeper disease. More damage. So here's where Jesus gives us the first step in Matthew 18. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If you are listened to, you have regained that one. Ken Sandy, the president of Peacemaker Ministries, he's got a really helpful diagram that some of you have probably seen before. I know we've had people who've trained in this. He calls it the slippery slope of peacemaking, right? So he divides it up into three primary responses to conflict. There are the the positive peacemaking responses, but then there are the escape responses, what he calls peace faking, 
And on the other end, the other part of the slippery slope, there are the attack responses, peace breaking. And they go to some crazy extremes, don't they? But he says right in the middle, that's where we want to be. And we've already talked about overlooking. But Jesus says we've got to confront. We've got to talk about it. We've got to seek reconciliation. And if we would follow this first step that Jesus lays out, Richard Hayes says, think of all the, the backbiting and gossip we would eliminate in the churches of Jesus. Go and be reconciled. But Jesus knows it doesn't always end at the first step. Right? So then in verse 16, he says, if you are not listened to, Take one or two others along with you so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Right, so another one of those healthy peacemaking responses was negotiation, arbitration, mediation. Right, we can have, invite into the conversation other wise Christians to help guide us to be reconciled. We can have other wise Christians come alongside, offer a different perspective, help us get the logs out of our own eyes. Right? This is what Jesus says. And it's to our detriment when we don't. It's to our detriment when instead we just go for the escape response or instead we go outside the church for the attack response. We, we lawyer up in the secular courts, right? Oh, this, this is a big burr under the Apostle Paul's saddle. You remember 1 Corinthians 6? Let me read verses 1 through 8 so you get a sense of what's going on. When any of you has a legal dispute with another, does he dare go to court before the unrighteous rather than before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you not competent to settle trivial suits? Do you not know that we will judge angels? Why not ordinary matters? So if you have ordinary lawsuits, do you appoint as judges those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Is there no one among you wise enough to settle disputes between fellow Christians? Instead, does a Christian sue a Christian and do this before unbelievers? The fact that you have lawsuits among yourselves demonstrates that you have already been defeated. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? But you yourselves wrong and cheat, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Those might be some of the most radical words in the New Testament. Why not rather be wronged? Why not absorb the offense? Paul says, why not rather be wrong or have a wise brother or sister in Christ come and arbitrate? Right? He refers to Daniel 7, which talks about the holy ones of the Most High with the authority to judge. He says, you're going to judge the world. Can't you judge these disputes in the church rather than letting it spill out and damage the witness of the gospel? But Jesus knows that Sometimes step one and two don't succeed. And then we get to what I think is the toughest step in verse 17. He says, if that person refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. 
And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Jesus says after every single step has been taken, and after egregious sin, if if it's still unrepented, then the sinner can no longer believe they are a member in good standing. These are hard words to hear. I think we grasp the logic of it on its face, right? Especially when we think about the outside world, it's like, of course, you can't just act however you want to act and refuse to take responsibility for it and expect to remain in your position or your group or what have you. But it's hard to hear from Jesus, and it's hard to hear in the church for a couple of reasons, I think. First of all, we're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be a contrast society of peace. So getting to these extreme moments is really challenging. But I think it's also hard to hear because many in this room have seen people deeply abuse these words. I know that's touched my family and Laura's family and other families in this church, but these words of Jesus here, what we call disfellowship in the Church of Christ, I think they conjure up for some, some of the most toxic spiritually unhealthy leaders that we've encountered in our lives that have maybe hurt us deeply. But we still have to wrestle with the words of Jesus. We still have to wrestle with the words of Jesus. And I do also believe at times in that phrase, the abuse doesn't nullify the use, meaning even though someone has abused a practice, It doesn't necessarily mean that that practice doesn't have a use, a healthy use. But what would that possibly be? I want to close down the sermon asking those two questions this morning. What would disfellowship or excommunication, which is a much scarier word, I think, what would disfellowship possibly be and what would it be for? Well, here's an extreme example. Something tragic happened in the 1970s in the country of Chile. They were overrun by a military dictatorship through a military coup in 1973, and General Augusto Pinochet took power. And he implemented a regime in Chile through unconscionable methods of disappearance and kidnapping and torture and murder that brutalized the Chilean people into submission. And William Cavanaugh has a book about this period in the country of Chile, and he talks specifically about the church's failures at first to address the issues, to speak out for peace. And he also talks, though, later about their successes. And he mentions in 1980, these bishops in Chile that actually excommunicated torturers that were in their church, right? Thousands had gone missing, had been tortured, had been killed. And they actually excommunicated. They said, look, this is a sin against the body of Jesus Christ. Some of these torturers and the torturees are both professed Christians. And they said, enough. 
Now that's a very extreme example, far removed from our life here in Edmond, Oklahoma. But I think it demonstrates that there is sin so egregious that it would be unmerciful not to tell the sinner they have placed themselves outside the boundaries of the circle of disciples. Right? In that instance, the sinner has unrepentedly placed themselves outside the circle of Jesus' followers, and it would be unmerciful not to acknowledge that. It would be unmerciful because, as Kavanaugh says, excommunication is the formal offering of reconciliation in the hope that even the most hardened offender will be saved. This is the very step that Jesus gets to. Disfellowship. But it's not the final step. Because we're asking, what is it for? And immediately after our text, at the very end, Peter came up to Jesus and said, Lord, if my brother or sister sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. Or 70 times seven, without limit. Did you also notice the quirk of how Jesus landed this last step? In verse 17, he says, If the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In the Gospels, the most scandalous offering of mercy and fellowship that Jesus gives is to Gentiles and tax collectors. Right? Matthew quotes Isaiah about Jesus who says I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles and in his name the Gentiles will hope. In the Great Commission he says make disciples of all Gentiles, nations. It's the same word. And then the Pharisees in Matthew 9 see who Jesus is eating with and they said to his disciples why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this he said those who are not well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners. The ministry of Jesus is precisely the ministry of uniting Jews and Gentiles. It's precisely the ministry of having fellowship with the tax collectors and sinners. So Jesus is not giving us a blank check to shun the unrepentant sinner forever. Jesus is instead telling us, make them an object of your missionary efforts. They are now an object of your gospel proclamation. They've put themselves outside of faithfulness. Go and find them. Bring them back in. Extend mercy. Call them to repentance. The parable that Jesus tells right before this passage goes like this. If a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. We can sin and 
place ourselves outside of boundaries without repentance. We can short circuit that repentance through our pride. But the specific scandal of Jesus' ministry is that he offers it anyway. He continues to place that offer of mercy. He continues to offer it to the sinner, to the lost sheep, to the Gentile and the tax collector. Because that is the mercy of God. And that is the mercy and forgiveness we need in the church to make peace. That is the very mercy that we need to not pretend there's no conflict, but to deal with it peacefully in light of Jesus. That is the mercy that we need, the forgiveness that we need to have a society that can really stand peacefully in contrast to the world. It's going to take humility. It's going to take honesty. It takes wisdom and courage and love, but it is a work of the gospel, not a distraction from it. Amen? We need to commit ourselves to the mercy of Jesus Christ, reaching out to the lost, reaching out to the unrepentant, offering the forgiveness that only Jesus can offer, the Jesus who is our peacemaker and founds us by his grace. Let us stand and receive that mercy and forgiveness in this church for peace.